Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now I'm delighted that my guest today is Konstantin Kissin. Hello Konstantin. Good to be back. Uh, he's been on before, uh, obviously, I'm sure, because there's a lot of crossover, I think, in uh, the show that you watch here and also with Trigonometry, which he co-hosts with Francis Foster. It's a hugely successful uh, channel, pleased to say. Uh, but also, of course, uh, Konstantin is a comedian, increasingly a commentator, and uh, also uh, um, a forthcoming author, because his book, An Immigrant's Love Letter to the West, will be coming out in a few months' time. Uh, thanks very much for coming on. Good to be um, back, Peter. Thanks for having me. I went through your, you know, instruction. There. It seems to me, tell me if I'm wrong, mm. that the comedian part of that is slightly taking a back step. Is, is that right? Yeah, I, the main reason is just family life. When lockdown happened, I suddenly realized I hadn't seen my wife for a couple of years. That's how hard <laughs> I was working. And she was making that very clear. Yeah. And the, the, the days of me driving up and down the country uh, to, to do a, you know, drive for three hours to do a gig to, you know, 100 people and then drive back home or whatever it was. Uh, I just don't have the time. Uh, with trigonometry, we are doing a lot of satirical stuff yeah. now. Uh, and so the comedic instinct is still getting an outing. It's just not getting an outing in a stand-up format. I, I enjoyed it. And if you remember, you hosted me here with my show, yes. All of the Hands Well, and it, people yeah. enjoyed it. Loved so it. I, I enjoyed my time as a comic. And if I could do it from my bedroom, uh, I yeah. think I'd still be doing it. But it was just the lifestyle isn't for anyone who wants to have a family life. And my wife, we're expecting our first child now. Well, when are you? When's that going to happen? Uh, uh, early to mid-May. Oh, so, fantastic. so you know, it's just it wasn't going to work. Um, and, and yes, and also, of course, with some events that have been going on recently, it's meant that I've leaned into more of the serious commentary. Uh, and, I, you know, I'll always have many strings to my bow, I suppose. But, uh, well, yes, I, uh, I suppose... You, you say it's a practical consideration, mm. family. Uh, I don't wish to be too earnest, but is there also the sense in which things are so serious that it actually takes away the desire to do it in you or not? No, no. I actually, in some ways, as, as someone of Russian descent with the Ukrainian family, Ukrainian wife, Ukrainian mum, like, mm. I, I almost wish I was back on, on the comedy now because it's a rich yeah. time to, and people want answers and people want humour and people want this very dark time <clears> to be lightened up a little bit. I'd, I'd be very happy to be doing comedy yeah. now. It's just... It's the, it's the practical side of it. Uh, there's lots of jokes to be made always, particularly in dark times, in yeah, my opinion. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, myself coming from uh, a Russian Soviet background and, and from a Jewish background, that was always the way in the Soviet Union, Peter, particularly for Jewish people, is making light of the very difficult circumstances yeah. in which they were living. That's always been a big part of my attitude to comedy. So, no, I, I'd be happily doing comedy if it wasn't for all the practical <laughs> stuff right now. But you've been doing a hell of... I mean, I've seen you a lot on the media, mm. uh, for obvious reasons, for the ones you've just described, mm. uh, given the current situation in Ukraine. Um, you did Question Time. What was that like for you doing Question Time? Uh, it was interesting, uh, because I think for both of us who are fairly strong critics of the mainstream media, mm -hmm. I, I was pleasantly surprised by some things, I would say. Uh, it's a, clearly a program that's made by very bright people. Mm -hmm. uh, now, it's true to say that they're all anywheres in David Goodhart's definition. Mm. They're all sort of metropolitan, very mm. open to the world. That, that, and few of them, I would say, 
felt to me like people who are attached to a specific place. And so some of the issues that you and I talk about on our shows might, might not be as open-minded, but I know that they watch trigonometry, for example, to look for guests. Now, the slot they're filling with them is, <laughs> is a different question. But nonetheless, it's made by interesting, bright, intelligent people. So that was reassuring. And I was pleased to, to go on there and I think to make some points that people maybe haven't heard before. Yes. In particularly in a way that I think was quite direct and, and honest and upfront about what was going on. So that was good. Uh, I enjoyed that. Uh, I think it, I think it's good. So whenever, I, you know, I'm a critic of the mainstream media and I think they've done a very bad job. And many, many people wrote to me afterwards saying that was the first time I've watched Question Time for 10 years or five years or seven years or whatever it was. And I'm one of those people. I yes. used to watch Question Time religiously. Yeah. Uh, the, I, I was in the audience of Question Time probably 16 or 17 years ago. That's how much I used to love the program. I, I used to love the debate and the discussions that were being had. And I think it, it, it slid, slid since. Yeah. So I was pleased to be, to be there and to add perhaps a bit of what I think is necessary, which is straight talking, honesty, uh, and cutting through all the nonsense that I think you get from politicians on there. Yes, I, I remember doing it myself, it was, uh, what, 2018, something like that, I think it was. And I, you know, I remember being pretty nervous mm. about it, actually. Mm. But it was the audience thing, because it, the bias thing is often seems to be supplied by the audience. You know, people always going about the BBC handpicking people or not being balanced. But for some reason, my audience down in Plymouth were not bad. So once you're sitting there in front of them and you can see the whites of their eyes mm. and everything, I suddenly sort of relaxed a little bit. But I, I, th I think that the main thing has been that people are criticised it for being just very monolithic. I mean, everyone basically has the same view, mm. but obviously, you know, not in, in your Yeah, way. I think on my programme it was a bit different because it was about Ukraine and Russia yeah. and that was a, a much more... It was a different issue to, to many of the divides we've been talking about for years now. But it's interesting you say you relaxed once you sat down because I was relaxed all the way through. We drove down. Uh, I was very, very calm. You know, I've done a lot of media, as you say, at this point. So it's, it's not really anything new to me. We sat down on the desk, very, uh, at the desk, very, very calm. And then when the program started... I remained very calm up here, but my body was absolutely frozen and it took me quite a while to just yeah, yeah. take some deep breaths. And, yeah. and, and that, was, that was quite a surprise. But yeah. I think the magnitude of the number of people who are likely to be watching, I suppose, hits you at that moment. It uh, does, yes. And of course, uh, presumably you got a lot of feedback on it. Yeah, I had, you know, feedback was very, very positive. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Yeah. I'm very grateful that I was, as I say, I was able to go and put, I think, what, what was a fairly simple, but a, a fairly straight uh, set of points yeah. for people that they might not have heard before. And I think, you know, a lot of people in the public responded. So that, that's rewarding. Uh, I know that you, you, you mentioned your family. And I just wonder if you, I know you've, you have talked about this before mm. with other channels, but mm. um, what is the kind of, you've got family in, your, you were born in Moscow, right? yes. so, but you've got family in Russia and in Ukraine, and yes. your wife's Ukrainian, isn't yes. she? So how much are you in contact with both sides? Oh, all the time, yeah. I speak to people in Russia, in Ukraine. Um, I have family and my wife has family in the north of Ukraine and the south of Ukraine and the west of Ukraine. It's a country to which I go or yeah. used to go regularly, several times a year usually. Yeah. So I'm very, very connected with, with that part of the world, which I think is why I have a, you know, perhaps a slightly different perspective to yeah. many people now. Yeah. Uh, because I, I know what it's like on the ground. It's not something I've read about or watched a video about on YouTube. 
And so you say you know what it's like on the ground, so there's not so much an element of surprise about what's been happening? Well, I've been predicting this since 2014 in, in one way or another. Once Putin took Crimea mm. and started a civil war in the two eastern regions, it was very, very clear to me that it, this wasn't going to stop, particularly given that there was no reason for him to stop. There was no pushback from the West of any material significance. Uh, so we, we, we allowed him to sort of complete this Anschluss with Crimea, and, and you go from there, really, don't you? Yeah. Um, what do you make of Zelensky? I mean, I, what I find... Mm. Into, can, you, can, you, can you explain this a bit? I mean, obviously, we, we feel we've become very familiar uh, with him, but I thought you know, it would be interesting, given your, your background, how, how big was he on the Ukrainian cultural scene? He, you know, he was the biggest star. On the, the biggest. Oh, the biggest. So he, people joked about it when he was first elected because he hosted and uh, he was the, the, the lead in a comedic series in yeah. which he played the president of Ukraine. Yes. Uh, and then he was then elected president of Ukraine. And it's interesting because uh, I think his election was not universally well received, even though he got over 75% of the vote in uh, in what was at that point a completely free and fair election. So the majority of the people voted for him overwhelmingly, but it wasn't felt that electing a comedian president was necessarily, mm -hmm. you know, uh, giving Ukraine international standing as mm -hmm. a country that's to be taken seriously. There were many people who felt that this was, you know, it was the worst of, it was the best of all the bad options, mm -hmm. but it didn't, it did not bode well for Ukraine that no. it had to elect a, elect a comic president. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, when I speak to people now, all of that sentiment has gone. He's universally seen as doing the right thing, as defending his country, as being courageous and brave. Um, now, it doesn't mean that everything he's doing, uh, people agree down to the last little detail or that everything he was doing prior to the war people agreed with at all. Mm -hmm. There were many people, as, as there would be in any country, crit uh, critical of him. But now, uh, be I think because it's wartime, uh, there's very strong unified support uh, behind him from many of his former critics too. Are you surprised at the way he's handled it? Yes. You, you really would not have thought? No, no. Why? Mm. Well, I don't think he'd had a chance to show his character, really. And so mm. I think when we look back to something like Afghanistan, mm. it, only a few months ago, where the moment the war starts or the, the Taliban start pushing back because the Americans were drawn, the first thing the president does, pack all his money in a car and start heading for the border. That, in my mind, was a possibility. Now, mm. that's probably very unfair on Zelensky of me to say that. But if you haven't seen him in this sort of situation before, how can you make that yeah. judgment? So. Yeah. I've been very surprised at the way that he's conducted himself and, and all power to him. Yes. I have to say, I think he, he's sort of given many people in the West a bit of a kick up the arse mentally. Mm. When you actually see someone, you know, being so forthright and uncompromising, and then it makes you realise just how lily-livered our own leaders are, no? I mean, oh, I'd do agree. You, do you, would you think? Oh, completely. Yeah. Of course. I mean... Sounds like a typical question, but I, I just can't help but ask it. If he, comedian, become highly respected leader in wartime, do you ever think, Constantine, uh, of becoming more political? No. Never. God, no. God, no. God, no. I'm not sort of saying, oh, you must have... But no. I just thought he was a comedian yeah. and hugely successful. You know, you, comedian, started you, uh, the YouTube channel. Yeah. But... 
you know, you have... It is a political thing. I mean, sure. you know, and you are Arsenal more. I wonder whether it has ever occurred to you, actually, I quite like the idea. Yeah, no, it, I, I've thought about it, uh, not for a very long time, but very <laughs> carefully nonetheless. Uh, and only in the sense that I think comedians, particularly comedians like me, who wanted to explore difficult subjects through comedy, um, in this country, in the, in the Western world, where every tiny little thing that yeah. you said is going to be examined under a microscope and people are not going to remember that you said something as a comedy piece, they're going to yeah. take it literally, uh, you're going to get destroyed. And, and I get other comedians talking to me about, well, maybe I should run for this. And I always say to them, are you crazy? What are you doing? Mm. They're going to dig mm. up that bit of material you did in 20, you know, 2012. Mm. Uh, and they're going to make it look like you meant it literally. You were not being sarcastic. You were not being ironic. And they're going to destroy your life. So no. But also, Peter, I think, let's be honest. Um, I don't think that uh, I would be able to maintain my forthright approach and speak honestly mm. about the things that I think ought to be spoken honestly about if I were in politics. Politics is the art of trying to please people by not telling them the truth. Uh, I don't want to be doing that. Uh, and, you know, with trigonometry, uh, we, we, we're, we're having conversations that I think shape some of the discourse that is happening. Mm. And so if you wanted to have influence, I don't know that I'd have more influence as a backbench MP for wherever um, than, I, than I do now. If, if that was my ambition, I actually, whether that is my ambition, I'm very skeptical about. I, I, I'm not sure the bigger our channel becomes and the more people listen to us, the more keen I am to become more of a bystander who just provides yes, yes. neutral commentary or factual commentary as opposed to getting involved. Because it is, you, you're on over 300,000 subscribers yeah. now, aren't you? Mm. Um, and I think you've got a point. I think that you probably do have more influence mm. actually doing, doing that than being a backbench MP. It's just a, it's just a thought because I suppose that there comes uh, a time sometimes where you think, actually, you know, I want to possibly, uh, rather than being, as you put it, a kind of bystander commentator. Mm. I actually want to sort of like initiate something. But I think this is the problem, is that as we're a little bit like discussing before we came on air here, mm. is that you're then required to have an opinion of almost everything. Yes. And we don't, do we? No. And, and by the way, uh, the main most important thing is not only do we not have an opinion, I would certainly say for me, I don't know about you, there is a, an almost immeasurable number of things about which I know nothing. Yeah, yeah. And so to have to then go into politics and suddenly have an opinion about, I don't know, internet infrastructure in Norwich, mm. it's, mm. what do I know about mm. that? There's things that I think I understand and I've tried to cover them on trigonometry in my interviews, in my book, uh, in, in other things that I think are a valuable perspective as someone who comes from outside of the West and has perhaps a, a, an outsider's look, which was always my comedy. That's yeah, what it was yeah. based on around yeah. as well. Uh, and that's what I, I wanted to do. Uh, but I, I'm, you know, I, I, of course I have ego, but I also have enough humility to recognize that I don't know everything. And in fact, I know very little. Mm. So the little that I know, I try to share with people. Everything else is, is really for other people who, who have a broader perspective, perhaps. The thing is, is that the, the, you, you said they're coming from outside the West. Mm. And as I said, your book coming out in July, um, she's already pre-orderable, I would add. <laughs> Uh, is uh, an immigrant's love letter to the West. Mm. But there's this odd thing, isn't there, that essentially, you know, you're talking about coming from a country, the country of Dostoevsky, the country mm. of, 
Tchaikovsky, mm. of, you know, Sostakovich. It, it sort of is part of Western culture, isn't it? I mean, there is this schizophrenic, I've just been in Hungary, they talk mm. often about this, mm. you know, that they would be classified as not being in the West, but actually you're talking about the same things. We, we you know, we created the same things. Mm. Well, I, I think to suggest that Hungary is not part of Western civilization is historically inaccurate. Mm, mm. Uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire mm. was the center of Western mm, civilization mm. for a long time. Um, I think the, the civilizational split, in my opinion, is, uh, and Arnold Toynbee wrote about this mm. in a study of history, is between Eastern Christian civilization, so the descendants of the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, yeah. and uh, the Western Roman Empire, so the Western Christian civilization, which is one of the reasons that when you know people like to make everything about race nowadays, of course, but when we talk about Australia and New Zealand and Canada, uh, or but particularly Australia and New Zealand, let's say, as being part of Western civilization, the reason is that these are the descendants mm -hmm. of the people who were once part of the Western Roman Empire. That's why we call them the West, mm. right? Even though they're geographically in a very different part of the world. So I think that split is there. So I, I, I think, of course, uh, Russian writers and Russian musicians and composers and uh, playwrights are a part of our cultural yeah. space. Mm. But it's a civilization with its own values, um, which frankly, we're now seeing that, that, that difference in, mm. in approach. You've got to remember as well, Peter, of course, what we now call Russia spent spend a very long time under the Mongols, mm. uh, under the Mongol occupation. And many of the methods which were used in that time persist to this day in terms of people's mindset about how they should be governed and, yeah. and their approaches. So there is a difference between the two, I think. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, share and we shouldn't learn. I mean, some of the people that you've mentioned, are, are, you know, the, the, the Russian writers, for example, they're a huge part of our cu cultural sphere. And mm. we, we would be uh, very, very foolish not to learn from them. And, and that is, you know, people now, as I'm critical of what's happening and what Russia is doing, people, there's some <laughs> ironically Western people who have never been to Russia accuse me of hating Russia. I love Russia. For the precisely the reasons that you've just outlined, yes. the people, the you know, the people who've created some of the greatest literature, po literature, poetry, music, while being kept under the thumb, pre precisely by the sort of people that are now invading Ukraine. That's the tragedy of Russia. It's yeah. uh, it's people who are extremely bright, extremely intelligent, who think very deeply about the human condition, mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. philosophy, mm -hmm. about literature, about art, uh, who've who've been under the thumb of some very nasty people who've taken control of the country for, for centuries now. Yes, I, 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 I'm glad to hear you say that. I, I remember uh, I was just picking up one thing, and I think it was on Question Time, you mm. said, and you said, I, I feel very ashamed. Yes. Um, isn't it possible, though, to feel ashamed of the people running a country, but not the country? Of course, of course. It, it, and it's, it's funny to me to be accused of mm. not loving mm. my, Russia, where I'm mm. from. Uh, it's kind of like the trick that they tried to pull with Brexit, where mm. people voted to leave and they were accused of hating Europeans as mm. opposed to not wanting to be part of the European Union. Mm. Or people who talk about a sensible immigration policy mm. being accused of hating immigrants. Of course mm. it is. Uh, but when your country invades another and is killing innocent people and uh, under completely false pretenses, then I think you are right to be ashamed mm. of what it's doing. And I am ashamed of my country mm. and what it's doing right now. Uh, Ukraine is putting up, uh, famously, uh, an extraordinary fight. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is pure speculation, but 
Are you in any way optimistic? Uh, I can't see that far into the future. I, at this point, I think it's, hangs, it's hanging in the balance. I, I've commented in recent weeks that I, you know, my concern, and I'm not saying this is what will happen, but it is my concern, that the outcome of the conflict will likely be a Russian victory. Mm. Um, just the way things were looking at that time. It seems that the Russian advance has stalled completely now as we mm. speak today. And in fact, Ukrainians are pushing back. My worry is nonetheless that um, all that will happen, Putin is desperate now, he's desperate mm -hmm. to win, mm -hmm. that they're just going to flatten more cities and they're going to start using worse and worse weapons. Mm -hmm. um, and essentially they will try to win at any cost, even if that means massive civilian casualties. Even if that means, you know, this, this idea that the, the Russian government is putting forward is that they're rebuilding the Russian world mm. as they flatten ancient Russian cities mm. like Chernigov. Uh, it's, it's atrocious. Um, and so my concern is that Ukrainians are fighting very bravely. And if I were a Ukrainian on the ground in Ukraine, I would be right there with them fighting to defend my country. Yeah. But, and I hope to be wrong very much about this. I just worry that even as the conflict runs on, unless the West really steps up the level of help, particularly anti-aircraft support, because that's really what the Ukrainians mm. need. They need to, as they say, close the sky to prevent Russian bombing uh, and airstrikes. Uh, if they can do that, I think they might have a very good chance of winning. But if that doesn't happen, then you might just see that the conflict is extended. The outcome is unchanged, but the number of casualties on both sides, but obviously with the Ukrainian civilians particularly, uh, goes up. Mm. So that's my worry. Um, and it's a very difficult conversation. But as I say, I think Ukrainians, as you say, rather, I think Ukrainians are putting up a brave fight. And of course, I, I hope that they're successful. Well, I, I think they've sort of been an inspiration, mm. <laughs> actually. Uh, I, what I find interesting, I, I, I wonder what, what your thought is on this, uh, Constantine. Um, obviously, you were pretty forthright during the pandemic, for mm. example. We've had the pandemic. We had Brexit before mm. that. You were a Remainer, were you not? Or were you I not? voted. I, I, I reject the label of Remainer, Peter, okay. very harshly. Okay, sorry. Okay. But I did vote Remain. You did vote again. Right, yeah. okay. So no, to I, me, didn't, I didn't mean with I, all the no, no, no. baggage. I'm not having a go at you. I'm just try, I want to clarify the point. I think you can vote Leave and not be a Brexiteer, and you can vote Remain and not be a Remainer. Oh, sure, I, sure. And that's my, I voted yeah. Remain, but once the vote came in, yes. I thought it was essential that we respect the democratic wishes of the British people. Right. And I think what a lot of people associate with the term Remainer is someone who voted Remain and thought that the vote of the other people was irrelevant because that's mm -hmm. what I voted for. I was never one of those people. No, no. And as you know, I was very open to hearing from people at a different point of view to me. That's, that's why I pick you off on it. It's, okay, no, fair, fair, fair point, fair point. Um, I suppose what the, the point I was going to make really is that, okay, let's take Brexit, leave it here. Yeah. And let's take the, <laughs> the, the pand pandemic. Uh, you wrote a a great piece, uh, you know, actually it, was, it became a piece in Substack, where mm. you now have a column, don't mm. you? Um, which was a, a thread on Twitter about why people might be hesitant to take the vaccine. Mm. You weren't saying that they shouldn't, I, you were just saying why they might be. Mm. Um, what I was wondering is, um, do you get impatient with people now who, on social media mm. particularly, seem to see a kind of conspiracy in the situation in the Ukraine. Mm. And I just, I've, I've tried to understand it and I think that 
people feel, for example, when it comes to the pandemic, that they were told lots of lies, mm. it was unreasonable. Mm. So they're actually now applying the same thing. They just simply do not believe anything. Yes. I mean, what's your attitude? To yeah, that? well, I, look, I think we've got to delineate a couple of things within that, if, if you allow me to. Yeah. So, I, look, there's obviously, I, I think mainly these conspiracy stuff, that, as you describe it, or a feeling that we're not quite being told the mm. truth, let's, let's, let's mm. call it that, because cons conspiracy triggers people. Uh, so mm. we, we won't use that word. Um, it, it breaks down into two separate things. Part of it is the sort of populist left. Mm. And these are people who hate the West. Let's just call mm. it what mm. it is. They always hated the West. They see the West as the root yeah. of all evil. And so they will always side with our enemies. And, and mm. I think we, we all know that. They're a small minority of the population. Uh, they've always existed. Uh, in times of, of peace, they, are, they, they bang on about other things. And, and I agree with them on a lot of the things that they bang on about, incidentally, mm. normally. Mm. But in this case, I think they've shown the true colors. Mm. Um, which I always thought would likely happen. I think on the populist right, it's a different set of things. So the left hate, hate the West. I think on the populist right, there's a few things. The first one, of course, you mentioned, which is the media have been lying to us for a long time, and, and, and they know that. Mm -hmm. and, and so their skepticism about what the mainstream media is telling mm -hmm. them is pretty natural. Uh, the other thing is that uh, they uh, don't like the Western elites, mm. who are, mm -hmm. they see as the ones that have been lying to them this whole time. And again, I, I have some sympathy with that. Mm. Um, uh, so that's another part of it. And, and the third one, I think, is uh, as a result of those two things, uh, they see Putin as someone who is challenging and attacking the people that they hate, yeah. Western elites. And so for that reason, I think it's tempting to, to sort of think that maybe, well, you know, maybe he's, he's doing something necessary. I think mm. that's how people are thinking. Another thing, of course, is uh, if you are disillusioned with what your media are telling you, you will likely seek out other media yeah. that are giving you a different perspective. So a lot of people have been imbibing Russian propaganda uncritically. Now, I, I don't, I, I'm not a supporter of the shutdown of uh, Russia today, for example, that's happened mm. recently. I think uh, that was unnecessary. Uh, but I, I do think if you're going to watch Russia today, uh, which is pure Kremlin propaganda mm. and always has been mm. one of the reasons I never did any interviews, mm. I think. Maybe I, I might have done one purely because, it, anyway, uh, I, I tried to stay away from it as much mm -hmm. as I can because I just, I didn't want to be involved in this. Yeah. Uh, but if you're going to watch Russia today, you have to use your cricket, critical faculties. And I think a lot of people haven't been. Now, am I frustrated by that? Well, initially, I was very frustrated by it. Uh, I've made my peace with it. I, I don't, people are allowed to think what they want to think. All I can do is tell them what's going on on the ground uh, in Russia, what people in Russian media are saying mm -hmm. that they're not hearing, um, that what Russian leaders are saying that they're not hearing. That's one of the biggest problems, Peter, at the moment is a lot of people don't speak Russian. Mm -hmm. They've never been to Russia. They don't understand. And so I've just been trying to put out clips about what's actually being said on Russian mm. television, the way that uh, Russian presenters, uh, people who are equivalent to a Piers Morgan or an Andrew Neil, uh, Kisilov and Solovyov, for example, are saying, and these people are openly talking about how Ukraine isn't, is, isn't the end of this, it's just the beginning. Yes. In order to secure the strategic interests of the Russian Federation, we've got to keep moving further. Uh, they keep threatening the West with nuclear weapons, etc. Mm. So, but, but if you all only watch Russia today, of course, you're, mm. not, you're mm. not hearing that side mm. of it. So, Look, um, in, in 1938, if we had Twitter and YouTube, 
Mm. There'd be lots of people in mm. those days mm. saying, well, Adolf Hitler is perfectly legitimate in his view mm. to, to free the Germans in the Sudetenland. Mm. Uh, and by the way, that was partly true, right? Hitler had more justification to invade Czechoslovakia than, than Vladimir Putin does to invade Ukraine, mm. right? But does that mean we shouldn't have resisted yeah. Hitler? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so to me, the, the question of all these sort of different ways of looking at it is kind of irrelevant because at the end of the day, we're talking about a war of aggression mm. in the heart of Europe. Mm. Uh, and that, that is all that matters to me. Um, there's also a lot of nonsense about why Putin is doing this. People don't understand that he's been talking about this since the moment he came to power, that Kiev is the sacred place on the map for him, that he's always talked about uh, pushing NATO back to its pre-1997 borders, which would mean all of Eastern Europe being under his control. Mm. They don't understand that when Russia talks about a neutral Ukraine, what they mean is going back to a time where Russia decided who the president of Ukraine was exactly, yeah. and how Ukrainians lived their lives. Uh, they just, they, they, pe people buy into the propaganda uncritically. That's fine. People are allowed to think what they think. We live in a free country. Uh, I'm, but rather than focusing on them, I think, Peter, what we should focus on is the extraordinary support this country in particular has given to the Ukrainians. Well, I was going to ask you about that because you, you said that you pretty much you could foresee that this was going to happen, something like that. Mm. And I just wonder whether you could foresee or whether you've been surprised by the British response. I have been. I have been very pleasantly yeah. so, Peter. Yeah, yeah. Very pleasantly so. When I speak to people in Ukraine, uh, and it's interesting seeing our media uh, trying... They're still stuck in that frame of mind where, like, Boris Johnson is evil. And I am no fan of Boris Johnson, as I think I've made mm. pretty clear on mm. many occasions, mm -hmm. particularly over lockdown and COVID. I think some of, some of the things that he did in terms of the laws that he tried to push through, just despicable and completely un-British, in mm. my opinion. And the way that we've seen his own personal hypocrisy on that issue yeah. uh, has been, you know, I, I've disagreed with many other things and I'm deeply disillusioned. Uh, with Boris Johnson and have been since pretty much the election, mm. if, you, if you ask me. But at the same time, there is no question that of the Western leaders, Boris Johnson has been one of the very best mm. in terms of addressing this issue, in terms of providing support to Ukraine. And if you speak to people in Ukraine, that is what they will tell you. Yes. Universally, yeah. universally, they say, thank you. Please tell people in Britain when you speak to people, you guys have been the best. You've been sending support. You've been supporting us. And it means a lot. So there's no question in my mind that much of the West have abrogated, I think, their responsibilities, mm. but Britain hasn't. Um, and, you know, full credit to Boris Johnson for that. It, it pains me to say this, but, uh, but he deserves credit. Mm. And so, does, so do many other people in the British space, uh, in the commentary space and, and so on. I, I think we should give ourselves a pat on the back for how we've responded. And when I talk to ordinary people in this country, they've been raising money, I mean, on trigonometry. You, did, you raised about 50 grand, We you? raised 55 grand in an hour and a half, Peter. Wow. That's how strongly people all over the world yeah, feel yeah. about this issue. And so when British people are listening to this, who, who've been supporting the humanitarian effort, or have been watching our government providing support to Ukraine, you should know that you should be very proud of your country mm. in the way that it's stepped up mm. in this moment, uh, unlike many other Western countries. So uh, I have no criticism to make on this particular issue of, of the British government at all. Uh, and on the British people, they've been extraordinary. It's interesting, isn't it, how a huge crisis, or as it just doesn't really begin to cover it, just calling it a crisis, mm. something like this, sort of the scales fall from people's eyes in all sorts of ways. So mm. um, I'm, I'm sure, for example, it, you know, like with Brexit, uh, it took the debate to actually clarify what the EU was. And I, I think that 
a lot of people who didn't really pay much attention now know that Germany was taking all that energy mm. from, you know, buying Well, of energy. course, I've been banging on about this for yes. years and no one was listening. Yes. But now we're starting to see yes. that some of this... Now, I'll be honest with you. I mean, one of the things that has shocked me, uh, one of the things I predicted very early on when the war... when Not the war, when Russia invaded Ukraine, was that I thought this was going to be, you know, a, a moment in which we would start to have a sensible policy on energy. And yeah. what I mean by that is... Yes, of course, pollution and resource depletion and, and all of these things matter. And of course, we can have a conversation about climate change. But do we throw our security out of the window? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do we, does Germany yeah. <laughs> destroy its entire nuclear industry to yeah. keep little Greta happy? I mean, I didn't think all of this was particularly sensible. And yeah, I've been yeah. trying to make this point. We can focus on environmental issues that are important, Peter, without putting ourselves at risk of some much more immediate mm. things that are a problem. Mm. And you see the weakness of, of Europe's response, uh, continental Europe's response. Eastern Europeans, they're, they're responding very strongly. And yes. Poland's been brilliant and, yeah. and other countries because they know th this nonsense about how Putin's just upset about NATO expansion. They know that's nonsense because yeah. yeah. they keep getting invaded by Russia over and over and yes. over and yeah. over in their history. They know Russian expansionist ambitions have always been there and will always be there. But in Western Europe... Let's let's be honest. They, they, they've they've sold themselves out both in terms of their political elite to Russia and in terms of the energy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. They buy a tremendous amount of energy, and they don't want to inconvenience themselves by having to reorientate themselves to not doing business with this evil regime. Mm -hmm. uh, despite you know what they do um, and how they have not stepped up in the right way, maybe um, or strongly enough, uh, you still. Love the West, don't you? Of course. Um, so I suppose, uh, I'm being frivolous, you were talking obviously about Europe there, but uh, um, your book, Love Letter to the West, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate this, but it seems to me that there is this kind of window at the moment. Mm. I think, you know, in, in a way, your book is remarkably well-timed. I know it wasn't intended like mm. that. Uh, but that somehow or other, we've got to get our act together we sort of have you know kind of strategic way for this crisis sort of but i'm talking about the hinterland of that mm. all the things you've already talked about mm. kind of self-loathing all of this mm. um when you uh, when you were writing the book presumably i mean what started you off writing that well was it what what actually was it was there a sort of something that happened or what why did you feel the need to write it I felt the need to write it, Peter, because I, I'm not saying I predicted that this invasion would happen yeah. on the 24th of February 2022. Yeah. But m my worldview is not the worldview that I think liberal elites in the West have been very keen to uh, delude themselves into, which mm. is we live in this peaceful, happy, mm. pleasant world in which all we do is trade and get on with other people. And everyone elsewhere mm. in the world, Peter, really wants that as well. All they want mm. is peace and prosperity. Mm. And th there's no one in, the w in anywhere else in any other part of the world who's in any way aggressive or authoritarian or expansionist. And all we just need to do is be peaceful and happy and friendly and make sure that we, we you know, really respect the rights of everybody and blah, blah, mm. blah, blah, blah. I think the reason I started writing the book is it's the question I've been asking myself for a long time. What happens when a civilization that believes diversity is our strength encounters a civilization that believes strength is our strength? Mm. 
And it has to grow up, presumably. And, I, I, and it does have to grow up. And it has to recognize that uh, diversity is only a strength to the extent that it is a strength. Mm -hmm. uh, and all our other things that we've been focusing on are only a strength to the extent that they make us stronger. But if we over-obsess about certain things, then we detract from other things that matter, like uh, making sure that we are confident in ourselves, that we uh, bring up a generation of people who who are critical of their country in a healthy way, who want to make it better, but don't grow up in a nihilistic, uh, self-loathing, self-flagellating society, which tells them that everything that we've ever done is evil, mm -hmm. that what defines us most here in the West is the evil elements of our past, the things that we were doing, which, by the way, they don't tell you were happening in exactly the same way or much worse in every other mm -hmm. part of the world at mm -hmm. the same time. Uh, so this myopia is what I've really been trying to speak about for a very long time, mm -hmm. since before I wrote the book. But, uh, you know, I wrote a, a, a preface to the book in which I basically said that if we don't get our act together, uh, our civilization is in danger. And I thought it was very powerfully written and I showed it to a few friends and they said, oh, Constantine, this is beautiful, but you've got to take it out. It, it, it's, it's too melodramatic. Mm -hmm. And then a few weeks mm -hmm. ago, I put it back in because I was right. Mm. Our civilization needs to grow up. It needs to remember what makes us who we are. Yes, uh, tolerance and freedom and all of these things are, are part of our history. But with that comes a responsibility to protect those things. Mm. We have to protect our freedoms, the freedom to speak your mind freely. Mm. That is what makes our civilization great. If you look at where are the greatest inventions in the world coming from, well, even though people in Russia are very smart, very, very smart, extremely well-educated, historically speaking, they have to go to America or to Britain to come up with big technological breakthroughs. Mm. Why? Because these are the places where you are actually free to pursue things, to be rewarded for the things that you do. So. That's what the book is about. It, it's reminding people the value of who we are and what we have here in the West, why people like me come from other places and want to be here, why this, th this country, the United States and the West more generally in our values are better than values mm -hmm. in other places, are better than those. And I don't think we should be ashamed, ashamed to say this. No, no. I mean, and Ukrainians, I, Peter, and this is a really important point, yeah. just to v finish mm. very briefly, Ukrainians are giving their lives at this very moment mm. for one reason and one reason only they're being punished for wanting to move in a westward direction. Mm, mm, mm. That's why. They want to be as free and as prosperous as we are, and they've been wanting to do that from the moment the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm. My grandfather, in 1991 in Ukraine, a Russian speaker all his life, you know what the first thing that happened when the Soviet Union collapsed? Mm. Started learning Ukrainian. Right. My aunt, Russian speaker all her life, speaks, she'll forgive me for saying this, terrible Ukrainian to this day, but she speaks it because she wants her country to move in a different direction. Uh, in the first few years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when double glazing became a thing in Ukraine for the first time, you know what they called it? What? Euro windows. <laughs> because uh, you, everything European was yeah. seen as being this opportunity mm -hmm. to make your life better. Mm -hmm. This is what people want, and they're now suffering and dying to protect that desire. And if they're going to do that, I think it's, it behooves us to do everything we can to at least, if we're not gonna help them as much as we can, at least we should remember what we have here and value it and treasure it. Well, I mean, I, I you know, this whole thing, the NCF is based on, on wanting to value Western civilization. I, I couldn't sympathize more. I have to say, you know, you say Western civilization could be 
in danger. Um, in my, my worst times, mm. I can't help thinking it's, we've gone on a bit from that. Mm. And that in fact, it's sort of lost its mind. Mm. Um, and sometimes it's hard. Hard. You know, when people say the world's going crazy, you, you have to say to them, you know, even on Twitter, people say, oh, what's happening? The world is going mad. You say, well, I'm afraid it, the world is not going mad, actually. It, it's, the, it's the West, and particularly the Anglospheric West, yes. which is having this nervous breakdown. Mm. Um, you have to remember the majority of people in the West do not, haven't lost their minds. No. It's the people who are running it. Yes. Same old thing. Yes, yeah. and we talked about hatred of Western elites, which is mm. understandable, mm. and it's pushing mm. a lot of ordinary people yeah. to look elsewhere let's mm. say um but yes i agree with you i think i mean and, and and the media has not been helpful on this either if you look at uh brexit and, and the election of donald trump uh whatever the ugliness that came with both of those and there was elements of that i think it's true to say those were popular revolts against mm. western elites that have lost their minds mm. Uh, and the way the media tried to paint it as something else, as, you know, these racist movements or whatever, was an attempt to suppress those revolts. Um, and the problem is that, of course, whenever you suppress people's genuine democratic expressions, the revolts only get uglier. Mm. And that's always been my concern as well. The more the, more the Western elites who have lost their minds try to impose this, uh, this craziness on the rest of us, the uglier the backlash is going to be. And that's always been my concern. I'm not concerned about a bunch of woke people with pink hair running around screaming slogans. Mm. I'm concerned about the provocation that's causing elsewhere yeah. and the reaction that could come against that, which is why I think it's up to sensible people like us to go, we don't need to go off that deep end mm. and we don't need to go off this deep end. We need to remember who we are, what our values are, and make it okay to be proud to be British again, to be proud mm. to be American. You know, one of the things that boggles me as someone who is a casual observer of American politics is I don't remember the last time I heard someone on American TV say, this is un-American, mm. or on British TV say, this is un-British. Mm. They used to say that, mm. they don't anymore, and I wonder why that is. Yeah, I, actually, I, the, the one that the, the saying that I just never hear now, which was just all over, uh, kids right up to old people was, "It's a free country. Do what you like. It's a free country." Yeah, and I know that sounds frivolous, but actually, these things are emblematic. Of course, people don't say it. Of course, they just don't say it. Of course, um, I mean, it's maybe a conversation for another time, but I am horrified by the change of attitude in younger generation mm. who don't care mm. about free speech are quite open about not caring in speech. They, yeah. they think hate, what they consider to be hate speech or offensive speech automatically trumps free speech. And this is shown in poll after poll. Mm. There was one this week, I think. Mm. And these are all the things that we have to do. It's a huge thing. The rot is very deep, I would say. Yeah. I agree. But, but I am hopeful nonetheless, yeah. Peter. I am yeah. hopeful because I think uh, you know, we've got to remember as well that many of these young people, they've been let down by our gen mm. my generation, your generation, and generations before. They have been. The mm. way they've been educated, mm. uh, the way they've been taught about these issues. If people our age don't care... I love it you say our <laughs> age. I think I'm 20, I've got 20 years on you, I think. Well, if people, if people your age and my age yes. don't care about freedom, don't explain to their children why freedom is valuable, don't talk about what happens in countries mm. that are not free. If people of our, your age and my age 
don't tell young people about, yes, slavery was bad, but it was happening much worse in every other part of the world at the same time. Yeah. That Arab slave traders took more slaves out of Africa than Western Europeans did. Mm. And the death rate was higher, mm. right? If we don't explain to people that, of course, we should aim to move forward as a society and treat people as well as we can and respect the rights of minorities and allow people to live their lives as they see fit without hurting other people. But at the same time, at the same time, we mustn't get into this idea that we're the worst people that have ever lived. We're not. We're not the worst people that have ever lived. We are some of the freest, most prosperous people in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most welcoming, open, tolerant countries in the history of human beings. And if we don't teach our children that, if they're not hearing that message in their schools, mm -hmm. in their universities, on their TV, on their radio, then how are they supposed to think that yeah, freedom yeah. is great? Yeah. They're 20 years old, they don't know anything. I, when, I knew, when I was 20 years old, I didn't know anything either. And if you're not hearing that message, the message I've just given you, that the Western civilization is great, when was the last time you saw someone articulating that point on, yeah, on national yeah. TV? No, doesn't happen. Yeah. So why are we blaming a 20-year-old for that point of view? Now, I still think some of the things that they're doing, you know, hounding professors out of universities and, and things like that are wrong and bad and should be opposed, and I do oppose them. But we've got to take responsibility. We've got to take responsibility. So my child is about to be born, and I'm going to make damn sure they understand, you know, they're going to be going back to Ukraine or other countries mm -hmm. around and seeing how people live there. Mm. So they understand. They understand the difference. They understand the difference between a free society and a less free society, a prosperous society and a poor society. And I want that, them to see that with their own eyes. And I think if more young people in the West had that opportunity, mm. uh, we'd find you know, that a lot of these things evaporate. You know, a friend of mine works in a school for children with behavioral difficulties here in the UK. And she told me the story about how they went on a school trip to Africa for a month. Uh, and after this girl came back and saw how people live in Africa, all her problems disappeared mm. overnight. A, a lot of the problems we face in the West are problems of our own success, Peter, and it's up to mm. us to solve them. Well, look, that's quite inspiring, really, Constantine, and particularly what you said about your coming, your child. Mm. Um, thank you very, very much. Um, the book, as I said, is out in July. You can order it. Uh, an Immigrant's Love Letter to the West. Um, thank you very much, Constantine. I'm sure we'll be seeing you on this or that with the other <laughs> channel very soon. Um, but uh, thank you once again. Uh, that's it for this week on So What You're Saying Is. We shall see you next time. Thank you very much. Hello. If you're enjoying the New Culture Forum channel and you believe in our mission, may I invite you to join our membership scheme at the link below or on our website, newcultureforum.org.uk. Our work is more important now than ever, and we have great plans ahead for the future, but we can't do it without your support. From as little as £3 per month, you can help ensure that we continue on our mission. As a member, you'll receive a range of benefits, including access to exclusive content, invitations to our private events, including here at our studios, free copies of our books, and much, much more, including, of course, our famous NCF mug. If you aren't able to become a member, then please help us by clicking this button and subscribing to our channel. It's completely free. Just remember to also click the bell icon 
so that you can get notifications when we post new videos. Thank you.